You're listening to the New City Church Podcast. These episodes are recorded live on Gadigal land. Sometimes the audio quality might not be perfect because what you're listening to is a conversation. We don't edit out the chatter and we think that's what makes it authentic. Wherever you're tuning in from, we hope you find this episode encouraging. Thank you that we are loved exactly as we are. Thank you that your love for us is greater than we could ever imagine, that it is wide and deep and high and long. Thank you that we start loved and we will never have to earn it and we never have. Thank you that we can never lose it. Thank you that you are the God who always runs towards us and never afraid and never away from us. Thank you that you are the God that we do not have to run from because you greet us with the eagerness of a puppy with sloppy wet kisses. Thank you that you have made your face to shine upon us and you are gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey. So my name's Karen. My pronouns are she, her. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Bronte, also she, her, uh, to the church that we helped found. How funny is that? <laughs> it's really awesome to be back here. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, uh, I was kind of part of the initial group that got together to get this place going uh, and part of the kind of pastoral team from the beginning. And Bronte's going to come up and just lower that for me. because otherwise I'm going to like drop things as I try to do that um I first came across that song that last song when I was in Canada um when I was doing my theological training over there and I just remember I had it on repeat because of just that concept of the endless love of God the relentless love of God that so pursues us and is and has never been in doubt but uh that I was taught to doubt it for a really long time. So I'm excited to be here on Gadigal land. I live on Baramadigal Darug land. Um, so it's really good to be here uh, tonight to preach on one of my least favorite parables in the Bible. It's a, it's a big contender for one of the parables I really dislike the most. I didn't used to have parables that were competing for dislike with one another, but I do now. It's part of my journey. So really, really excited to be speaking to you on Luke 14 and how much I really dislike it and why. It's, um, it's funny to dislike it because it's part of like a long tradition in the Bible, right? Uh, that, that stories would be told about banquets and feasts. It's really common in the Bible because it was such a common feature of not just Greco-Roman society, but Jewish society. Um, and Mediterranean culture back then as it was, it's just, it remains today a fundamental part of culture. And the way that this story is told and the way that it's used in a lot of parables and biblical passages is evocative of just everyday traditions in the way that a banquet or a feast would happen. So uh, in Luke 14, actually, I'm going to stop and read it because I just realized we haven't had a reading. Does anyone want to volunteer to read it? Any avid readers? I've got it right here. It's got my notes all over it, but come on up, Raven. Because you haven't heard my voice enough. Right. Luke 14, 
from verses 15 to 24 in the NRSV. One of the dinner guests on hearing this said to him, blessed is anyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Not any other type of food, just bread. Um, then Jesus said to him, someone gave a great dinner and invited many. At the time for the dinner, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The, the first said to him, oh, I have, I have bought a piece of land. I must go out and see it. Please accept my regrets. And the said, I have bought five yoke of oxen. And I'm going to try them out. Please accept my regrets. Another said, I've just been married, and therefore I cannot come. Very busy. Um, so the slave returned and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave came back and said, sir, what you ordered has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the roads and the lanes again and compel people to come in so that my house will be filled. For I tell you, none of those who were invited will taste my dinner. Thank you. You are beautiful. Trust you to be able to just get up and do a dramatic reading. Come on. You can't buy that. Well, you can buy it. We should. <laughs> When's your next show? When's your next show? Oh, Raven. I didn't get to go to the last one. <laughs> Hopefully he's still writing. So banquets in the ancient world in this particular context had a few things that are probably really familiar to you if you kind of have a bit of a background, if you were brought up in church, know a bit about the Bible and stuff like that. Can I just get um, a show of hands just for my own benefit? Because there's a bunch of you here that I don't know, which is completely awesome. But can I get a show of hands, uh, if you're willing, who was brought up in church? All right, that's universal. There we go. All right, just about universal. <laughs> um, so here's a couple of things that for, for most of you are going to be pretty familiar. So banquets in ancient world and in Jesus' kind of cultural tradition particularly, uh, what they would do was the person who's giving the feast would send out an invite. And they would collect RSVPs from all the people who were going to come to their banquet. And then the actual day of the banquet, you wouldn't know exactly what time it was going to be um, because they didn't have Fitbits to uh, tell them to count their steps and tell them when, uh, when the time was, was right for them to be there. So what would happen is on the actual day of the feast, the owner would send out a second invite to all the people who had RSVP'd, yes, I'm coming, and say, hey, it's all good. So it's normally at the end of the day after everyone's finished work, um, so the owner would send out an RSVP and say, it's all ready, um, you know, the, the beef is on the spit, the lamb is cooked, we're good to go. And then once everyone was invited and all of the guests who'd been invited had arrived, the master of the house would actually shut the gates of the house, shut the doors of the house personally as a sign of not, house is full, everyone that's meant to come is here. That might echo already some other parables where there's uh, gates closing, doors closing in those parables. And then they'd walk in and first of all, they'd get refreshed with water and fragrant oil to kind of freshen them up after a long day and might, might be stinky and stuff like that, you know, wash the feet, all that kind of stuff. If it was a really, really elaborate feast, then sometimes the, the host, particularly if they were really quite wealthy, they might actually supply a special robe for you to wear at the feast as like special clothes. 
But that's only if it was like a really wealthy host and it was quite a special occasion. That's another thing that shows up in one of Jesus' parables, um, particularly, and I think that one's in Matthew. Um, actually, it shows up in, in Revelation 3 as well. Um, and then once you'd arrived and you're getting seated at the thing, you'd actually be reclining around low tables. So you wouldn't be pulling up your chair to the table. You'd actually be reclining on the ground at the table. But there were definite positions for people. And you are actually seated at the table in order of seniority. So like in order of your rank, your social status in society, the most important people would have the most important places and the least important would be down the end going, what is that? The most important up the front. Uh, and so they're lying there. And then um, if you're, again, if you're a really special guest, are you getting that this is really stratified? If you're a special guest, you actually get extra portions dished out to you at the table, yeah? Um, and then, um, oh, and if it was like seriously your day, then they would go to pour your wine, but they would just keep pouring until it was not just full, but it was running over. If you're a special guest. Are you hearing all the, yeah? If you know the New Testament, all the Psalms, you might be hearing some resonances with some other things there. Um, and normally, I love this bit, Normally, if you're like once your hands are kind of getting dirty and everything, um, they didn't have hostesses bringing around warm towels. You actually would rub them on a piece of bread. That's how you get your hands clean. You rub them on a piece of bread. But as you were doing that, crumbs would fall under the table, and dogs that belonged to the master's house would come and eat the crumbs that had fallen off. As you're literally, it's what you're cleaning your hands with because you've eaten so well and you've got oil and goodness over your hands cleaning it on a piece of bread and the leftovers from the bread you're using to clean with all for the dogs oh look up the parable well not even the parable the story of the Syrophoenician woman for that one um and yeah so that's kind of some of the things that would happen at a banquet so this this tradition of hospitality runs so deep in the culture and there's so many traditions that people just know you know there's a certain way to have a banquet. You know there's a certain form that you kind of follow. So it's really easy to tell stories about it where it can serve as a shorthand for the point that you want to make. The story serves as a shorthand for the point that you want to make. That's the first thing I really want you to get today. Because here's why I really hate Luke 14. It has been used so, so badly in the history of the church it has been used so badly it has been used to exclude people it has been made to uh, make people feel like shit it has been made to um, exclude whole, whole sections of society so first of all in order to uplift you and bring you joy this evening just for a moment I want to explain why I hate this parable I'm going to start with what it's not about is everyone going, gee, why did they ask her that? Did she? Did she live of her own volition or was she like? No. What's what it's not about for a start? Well, ways I've heard it used and what it's not about. The first thing I want to say is that this parable is not about making people afraid that they're not going to get into heaven if they make bad life choices. Yes, I know that the parable says that there were people who said, oh, sorry, I know I RSVP, but I can't make it right now. 
but that serves as a foil for what the actual point of the parable is that we're going to get to in a minute. This is not a parable about to scare you so that you think that you are going to go to hell if you miss a week in church. That's not what this parable is about. This parable is not about scaring you into thinking that if you're not constantly evangelizing other people, if you're not grabbing them by the, by the hair and dragging them into church, that you are a bad servant of Jesus. Not what the parable is about. It's not about making you feel guilty and, and getting you into feeling like you have to constantly be in church. You can't miss a week or you haven't truly responded to Jesus. Not the point of the parable. It's not about personal evangelism. And finally, it's not about God being angry at you. It's not about God being, being angry at any of us. Again, that's not the point of the parable. What I want us to understand as we dive into this is there's a bunch of things that are just rhetorical devices that are getting us to the main point. And it's doing that by using a shorthand uh, of a very familiar story, a very familiar social trope, so that Jesus can make a very particular point by giving us a surprising ending. Because there's a whole bunch of stuff in here that's not surprising. We need to focus on the bit that is surprising. All right. So what is it that troubles me about this? I've said what it's not about. What is it that really troubles me about it? The first thing that really troubles me about Luke 14 is that the owner seems to be having a particularly bad hair day. The owner gets angry really, really quickly. Have you noticed that? Like as soon as the invitations start coming in with people going, look, I'm really sorry. I know I RSVP'd and said that I was going to be there, but I actually can't make it. The owner gets really cranky. I can understand that actually. Because remember that there's two sets of RSVPs. Hey, I'm Karen. She, her pronouns. Really good to see you. Um, there's two sets of invitations, remember. So this second invitation that's gone out now to say everything's ready, come on over, I'm pouring. That, that is the second invitation. People have already said, yes, I will be there. I'm going to be there on the day. And that means that the owner has catered for that crowd. And because banquets are huge social statements, because they're an exercise of social status, that, that is going to have been costly. So when you start getting in a whole bunch of people going, I'm not going to be there. And in fact, according to the story, everyone's like, I'm not going to be there. You, as the owner of the banquet, the master of the house, you have splashed all this cash. You've got all of this food and there is no one to eat it. I'd be frustrated. In fact, I would say that for me, it would hit on my insecurities right there. Yeah? If you threw a party and everyone that said they were going to come didn't come, Maybe the owner is feeling that embarrassment. So there's a financial cost and maybe there's an insecurity that's behind that anger. But we don't know. And you know why we don't know? Because it's not the point of the story. But too often in my upbringing, that was made a central feature of this story. And of the, the gospel, the good news, a central feature of that story was God is angry at you. The wrath of God is being revealed against all of the unrighteous became a central feature of the story. I don't think that's the point of the story. 
I don't think that's the point of the story. I think that the anger of God functions in scripture, not to say you are so worthless and crap, God can't, I can't help God's self, but be angry at you because look at what a stuff up you are. Look at what a dirty, rotten sinner you are. That's not the point of the gospel. The anger of God in the Bible serves to reveal what God loves and what God hates. The anger of God in the Bible serves to reveal God's anger against injustice, God's anger against intolerance, God's anger at people that treat others as a ladder to climb over to get to the top. The anger of God in the Bible has a purpose to show us what is right and wrong, not to show us that we are somehow worthless. But that's one of the reasons I have not liked this parable because it has been taught in a way that has focused on the anger of God. And the reality is that in this parable, the anger or the embarrassment of the owner is actually just serving to, as a prompt to extend the invitation, yeah? The anger isn't the point. The point of this parable actually starts there when the invitation is wider than it was ever expected to be. Now we're getting towards the point of the story. Here's another reason why I haven't loved this story. Manipulation. Manipulation. As I said, I have seen preachers use it to evoke guilt in people, to evoke um, guilt in people for not being in church, for not prioritizing church, for not compelling people to come to Jesus. I've seen it used um, to evoke guilt for being uh, preoccupied with worldly things such that you miss the banquet of God. The idea of compelling conversion. Here's the thing. When preachers focus on that, our, our preoccupation with worldly things and how terrible it is that these people said no to the feast, what are we missing when we impose this literal Western lens of an interpretation on this thing is that firstly, the excuses that were given in this parable for people not coming to the feast, very, very common social excuses. I mean, this poor bloke was having a pretty bad day that everyone didn't get there. Let's be honest, that would feel really crap. But the excuses that are given in this parable are very, very common. They were well known and they were generally accepted as valid excuses in the ancient world. Now, I've heard commentators say, say things like, oh, these excuses are so crap, they're really terrible. Uh, people are placing their wealth above the things of God, rah, rah, rah. Who makes a business deal without first knowing what you're buying, all these kind of things. The reality is, check the context, people. In that time, it was very, very normal that the sale of, for example, a field or a bunch of oxen would be contingent upon a final inspection. That was really, really normal. Bummer that it's falling at this time, absolutely. But it was quite normal for that to happen. Uh, the fact that this particular person is buying five yoke of oxen means they were mega rich, hey? Because five yoke of oxen means you have a lot of fields that need getting addressed. So, hey, this is probably one of your high status guests. And for them not to be there, oh, that's gonna be another little bit of, a, oh, that's a bit of a gut punch because I was banking on this person taking one of those like prominent seats at the table, hey? Maybe. What we do know is that there were valid excuses that were accepted at the time. Oh, here's the other one. So you've got the field, you've got the oxen, and you've got marriage. Now, 
you've read the book of Deuteronomy, you know marriage in the ancient world and in Jewish culture was really, really highly prized to the extent that when someone got married, they were actually exempt from military service for a whole year so that they could just focus on their marriage, so that they could focus on investing into that relationship and building their household. So again, that was something that was prized in this culture. So when we turn this parable around and say to people, how dare you prioritize wealth? How dare you prioritize other relationships over Jesus? How dare you? Wait a minute. That's not the point of the story. It's using a familiar narrative with familiar expectations to get us to the point of the story. Because here's the thing. Normally, in the parables of Jesus, each parable has one big idea. And it uses a very familiar story or a very familiar scenario so that we can shortcut to the point. Because it's using stuff that's so familiar in the culture, there's not a whole lot of time that needs to be sent on, spent on exploration or establishing the scene or explaining elements of the story because it was stuff that people were just super familiar with. And that meant you can get to the one big point and people would recognize when it pivots, when something new and different is happening here. But guess what? To this point, nothing new has happened. At the moment, it's all business as usual. Although, once we get to the point, I'm going to tell you, I'm still uncomfortable. Because the next thing that makes me really uncomfortable about this, that, this story is that the society that we're looking at is so flippin' binary. It's so stratified. Even when we move into the good news, even when we move into the pivot point of the parable, we've got these like um, comparisons between the rich and the poor, between the able-bodied and the disabled, between the slave and the master, the master who's rich enough to throw a blanket, blank, blank, banquet, maybe he throws a blanket as well. Maybe you need them when you're reclining on the floor. Oh, the master who's rich enough to do that and the slave that just has to absorb the anger and go and do what they're told. Rich, poor, able, disabled, slave, master. There's actually another binary that's operating in this culture that hasn't made it into the parable. And that is this. Normally at these banquets, it's only men that are invited. Women don't even get invited to the table. The only time that women are present at these banquets is when there are no slaves to do the serving. And then women step in to take the role of the slave. Normally women aren't even present in the story. Jeez, I hate that. And so the last thing that I dislike about this story, and we've already kind of bumped into it a couple of times. I really dislike how this story has been used. I really dislike it. I hate the way that people have used this story in the past to say Jews bad, Jews are out, Jews missed the boat, Gentiles good. I hate the anti-Semitism that is so embedded in the history of interpretation of this passage. That's wrong, people. I hate the fear that it is invoked in so many people who are afraid of finding themselves on the wrong side of the door when the master closes the door on the banquet. I hate that. 
And I hate the way it's been used to guilt people into being into church, to guilt people into accepting the gracious invitation of the host. I really don't like that. Years ago, I was at a little church called Hillsong Church, although at the time it was called Hills Christian Life Centre. Um, and I was in leadership there. I was uh, a youth leader. And uh, I'd actually grown up in the Salvation Army, hey, so the kind of Hillsong world was quite new to me. And I remember as a youth leader, if anyone's been involved in that church, you'll know that if you're in any kind of like youth leadership or anything like that, you are just expected to serve, like serve your guts out. And when it comes to Hillsong Conference, you are on deck 24-7. Yeah? I'm sorry. I should have given a trigger warning. <laughs> working your guts out. It was at Hillsong that I discovered no-dos. Um, even though you're working your guts out and pulling all-nighters and doing all of this to serve the house of God, it is an incredible atmosphere. And, uh, you know, amazing worship and back then amazing teaching is what I felt I was absorbing at the time. And I remember being this young, like 19, 20-year-old standing in that context with these incredible speakers that had been flown in from overseas and this incredible music and this stadium that with like massive speakers and band and smoke machines and all this stuff going off. And I remember standing there looking at it going, wow, this is amazing. They did not have this at the Salvation Army. They did have timbrels. They did not have this. It's flipping amazing. But I, I just found myself thinking, but what about all the people who aren't here? Like, what about all the people who can't make it here? And I remember thinking to myself as a uni student uh, from quite a poor family, um, I remember thinking to myself, man, if I wasn't serving, I wouldn't be here because I couldn't afford it. I could not afford to be here if I wasn't slaving my guts out for the privilege to be here. And at that point in time, this little idea kind of started to birth in my heart. What about the people who can't afford to be here? What about the people who can't make it here? And that eventually, long story short, evolved into myself and a really good mate of mine, Mike Hardy, um, starting a camp for like kids from tiny little churches that didn't have a youth group or from like rural communities where they were the only Christian in their school who had kind of no fellowship, no youth group, no support from other Christians and stuff like that. And so we started a camp for those kids where we would like um, get awesome mu music. Tash used to do the music for it. If you know Tash Holmes, legend. Um, she would do the music for it and Mike and I would do the teaching and we'd get a whole crew of people in. And you'd have these kids that never got the experience of like Christian fellowship and teaching and just great music and fun. They never had that until we started this thing. And so we were running this camp. So I started this monthly thing. I think I called it like access all areas or something. It was the idea that you get to go backstage and there's nothing off limits to you. Um, but we just meet monthly and they'd like come in for the country and all this kind of stuff. And just hang out, a little bit of teaching, but mostly just so they get a chance to hang out with other Christians. Uh, and I do that monthly on like a Saturday afternoon or something like that. But I remember the time came when um, I think it might have been like the second year that we were running this camp. And the person who at that time was the youth pastor over all of the different youth groups at Hillsong 
the person who was the youth group, the, the youth pastor there at the time took me out for lunch, asked if she could take me out for lunch. This has never happened before. Uh, asked if she could take me out for lunch. So she took me to this cafe uh, in Castle Hill. And as we're having lunch, she says to me, now, Karen, what's the story with these camps that you're running? I said, oh, my gosh, so exciting. All these kids who have never had, like, access to a Christian youth group and they've never had, like, contemporary worship and they've never had that, and they're actually getting a chance to do that. Like, it's so exciting. It's so awesome. I'm so excited. And she said, Karen, you need to stop. I'm sorry, what? She said, you're taking youth group, youth group leaders away from Powerhouse and Wildlife, which were the youth groups at the time. You're taking youth group leaders away and you should know that you are supposed to be serving the house. You should be in the house all the time and you're taking people away from it. And I remember saying to her, we've never, like I've never missed a night of youth and I haven't. Somehow I'd worked that around. Um, we'd structured the camp so that we'd leave after youth on a Friday night, back then when it was on Friday night, um, and then it would go for the rest of the weekend, but we wouldn't miss all that kind of stuff. We were like so focused on being there. She's like, Karen, you have to stop. It's all about the house of God. And the teaching, the understanding at that point in time was that your local church is the house of God and you need to give everything to the house. And the fact that I was giving attention to people from outside that house was really badly frowned upon. Where the heck do you get an idea like that? Some people got it from Luke 14. That is a manipulative and abusive understanding of this parable. And it is not the point of the parable. It is far from the point of the parable. I'm tempted to read you an example of really bad exegesis. Do you want to hear it? No. <laughs> All the people that have been to Bible college. Oh, yeah, I want to hear that. Here we go. This is an example of what's called eisegesis. Eisegesis. It's got nothing to do with ice cream or ice blocks. I wish that it did. Bronte wishes that it did. She loves ice cream. Uh, eisegesis is the opposite of what you're supposed to do with a Bible passage. Like when you're interpreting the Bible, you're supposed to do this thing called exegesis, where you draw the meaning out from the passage. You like look at the context of the passage and the cultural context and all that kind of stuff, and you draw out the meaning. Eisegesis is when you take your understanding and your culture and you read it into the passage. Let me give you an example. Uh, the host issued the invitations and then he sent out his servants to remind them, um, the invited guests. Here we go. Obviously, the gossip line had found something amiss. This isn't an actual Bible commentary. The gossip line had found something amiss with the banquet. Everyone quickly found an excuse not to come. The host was thoroughly snubbed. No one, uh, no one came. The excuses were ridiculous. You do not make financial deals of such magnitude without having assessed the value of the property. You do not accept an invitation to a banquet in conflict with a wedding. Jesus was showing how easy and absurdly finances and family matters get in the way of more important things. They can cause you to miss God's final heavenly banquet. The host's response was predictable. He would show these people. They got no more second thoughts or second invitations. They would never participate in his banquet. And so it goes on. 
what do I think this parable actually is about? Well, first of all, in the face of what we've just read, where the commentator says that uh, things like finances and family matters can cause you to miss God's final heavenly banquet, this parable is actually begins with Jesus drawing the attention away from some future out there heavenly banquet and bringing it back to the present. That's where this parable starts. You see, as Joel talked a little bit about last week, um, this parable, just before we get this story, there's actually, Jesus is actually at a dinner party, which, you know, it's really normal to invite philosophers and teachers to these banquets as well to, to kind of share their teaching and wisdom and stuff like that. But there's been a bit of hustle at this banquet. It's been quite tense, let me tell you. And at the beginning of this section, one of those at the table in the midst of this tension says, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. He actually throws out basically kind of a platitude that's saying, don't worry, it'll all be all right at the end in that future heavenly banquet on some fine day. And Jesus' response to that is to tell this parable which begins with saying, you know how I've given RSVPs to the banquet? The banquet is ready now. The time is now. Now is go day. Not some future heavenly out there, but right now today is go day. And so Jesus begins this parable drawing us from some theoretical future into a very immediate present. And he tells a parable that says how we treat people and who is included at our table has very real uh, value matters right now today. You see, sometimes in churches, we've been so obsessed with whether we're going to get into heaven one day that we've lost sight of the importance that how I live right now today really, really matters. And actually, most of the ministry of Jesus was about just that, drawing people back to the present and saying, hey, it's not about whether you booked your ticket at the final banquet. It's actually about how you're treating people right now today. Whether you're caring for the widow and the abandoned and the oppressed, what are you doing today and how are you living your life today? That's what really matters. The second thing that this parable is actually really about and all those kind of tropes, all those kind of standard features of a banquet lead us to the big surprise, the big reveal, is what happens when all those people have said, said no and the, the owner of the house says, I tell you what, go out and invite all the people who have never once had an invitation to a banquet in their entire lives because they will never decorate the top end of the table where all the people that are really important and have five oxen will sit. Go out and invite the people who have never once had a place at your table. Notice them for the first time and bring them in. And you know what? This, I'm going to just own it that this is verging on eisegesis. I'm just going to own that right now. When I read this and I read the compel them to come in thing, the way that I tend to take that as a gay woman who's like been fired for my sexuality and called demonic going into church and all that kind of stuff, when I read compel them to, go, to come in, I don't read manipulation and abuse or things like that. I read sitting with people and going, no, seriously, you're invited. I know you might think that you're not allowed to be in this place. Maybe you thought that you could never show up to this banquet being who you are. No, seriously, this is your place. You have a place at this table. I don't know about you. That's, 
that's the compulsion I needed. That's why I'm owning. That might be eisegesis. But that's how I read it today. Because if you were one of the people that was getting this invitation to the first time, the crippled and the lame and the diseased, and you're getting this invitation, you'd be going, stop shitting me. Like, seriously, don't be, don't be a jerk. Ha ha, that's really funny. I know that I will never be welcome there. Ha ha, yep, joke's on me. And for some of us, it takes the host Jesus and hopefully some of Jesus' people, right, to go, no, seriously, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. This is your place. These are your people. And you don't have to do anything to earn your way in. Here's your invitation. Come on in. I took a lot of compulsion <laughs> before I figured, before I learnt that I was welcome at the table of Jesus exactly as I am. And so here's another thing that I really love about this parable these days. That, that it sends a message of value and welcome and inclusion for all. Because you know what doesn't happen at this banquet? There's no healing line at the door. That might sound weird to you. What am I talking about? Here's the thing. It says that the people who are invited is the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. And that's who's sitting at the table, the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. They are not healed in order to make it in the door. They don't magically tithe 10% and get back tenfold and become rich to make it in the door. They are welcome exactly as they are. And so those binaries that we're used to in the story with the able-bodied and the disabled-bodied, whatever the case might be, that's, there's no binary in this story. The people who are excluded from just about every facet of society at this time are welcome to the banquet and they don't have to change a thing. They are welcome exactly as they are. Are you getting the story? Are you starting to get what my point might be? I don't know about you, but there's a few of us in this room that were told that if we were ever going to make it to the banquet, we either had to fake it or change. We have to cut bits off of ourselves in order to make it through that door. Or we had to fake it real hard. This is the radical story of Jesus. You are welcome exactly as you are. You're not broken. You're not the token invitation. You were always intended to be here. This is your place and you are welcome. That is the story of Jesus. You know, when Joel and Steph first asked if I'd come back and preach tonight, I was excited because I really love speaking about Christmas. Then Joel tells me the passage that we're focusing on for Advent, less excited. Except that when you get down to it, this story and the Christmas story have so much in common. Because who's centred in the Christmas story? Shepherds who are regarded as disgusting and dirty and not, they wouldn't be invited to the party either. They can look after the sheep and the oxen while their owners come to the party, but they will never be welcome, except in the Christmas story 
where they are the rejoiced gospel choir. They are at the center of the story. They are on sunrise. They are celebrated. Yes. Who's celebrated? A teenage unwed mother. She's celebrated in that story. In a society that would not celebrate that so much. Magi from the East. Involved in, in a religion and belief that are condemned in the Old Testament. And yet it's central to that story because they recognize a king and, and they know worship when they see it. It's actually the same story. And that's what we find in the person of Jesus, isn't it? The same story is happening over and over and over again. And the story is this. You are welcome. You are welcome. And if you thought that you were on the wrong side of the doors, if you thought that you would be one of the people on the outside when the master closed those doors and said, party's starting without you, you are not welcome here. That's what was wrong. And if someone has said that to you, they have lied to you because you are welcome at the table of Jesus. But there is a challenge here, right? There is a challenge here for us because the same welcome that we receive, we're meant to extend to other people. It's not that we now have to get out of jail free. Yay, the gays are going to heaven. Yes. sit back and go, yeah, we're included now, suck it. No, because that would be a bad way to talk. What we're actually meant to do now and the point of the parable is that the same welcome that we've received, we're supposed to throw that open to everyone, regardless of their sexuality or their gender or their ethnicity or their social status or whatever the case might be. We get to throw open the welcome of Jesus now. And that's meant to be good news too. Because you know what? It turns out not only are you welcome at Jesus' table, but you represent Jesus exactly as you are. You represent the beauty and the goodness of God. If you've hung out with me for two minutes, you know that I love saying this. We start loved. We start loved. You never had to earn it, and you will never lose it. You start loved. Not only do you have a place at the table, but you represent Jesus, and you get to invite all the people that thought that they were excluded to. Compel them to come in. Compel them with gentleness. Compel them with consistent and persistent love that says, I, I get it. I get it that you've been told that you're trash. I get it that you've been told that you weren't welcome here, but I'm here to tell you that's wrong. Do it respectfully. But do what needs to be done to let people know that they start loved and they are welcome here. Yeah? Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your love and I thank you that we start loved. And I pray for every person who's in this place right now, regardless of how long they've been in church or how long they've been in New City or wherever they've been, there's times when all of us wrestle with our place at the table. And there's stuff that we still have to unpack and undo at times. And so I ask for your gentle, gracious, 
compulsion that you would continue to whisper in our ears that we are loved, we are welcome, and we are safe. And Jesus, can I ask that you would send your spirit forth again to fill us and to empower us and to teach us to be that good news. Lord, teach us to live in such a way that others feel welcome and know that they are loved. I ask it in your